You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 13th of October on Monocle Radio. Israel prepares Gaza braces. The world's diplomats hastily confect containment strategies. And will Australians break with tradition and vote yes in a referendum? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Lena Khatib and Yossi Meckelberg will reflect on this week's events in Israel, Gaza and the wider Middle East and contemplate what lies ahead. Later in the show, we'll hear from one prominent advocate for a yes vote in tomorrow's Australian referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament and find out what caught the eye of our correspondent at the Freeze Art Fair. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Lena Khatib, Director of the SOAS Middle East Institute, and by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Uh, this time a week ago, whichever headlines Israel was in were above beard-scratching think pieces contemplating an apparently inevitable diplomatic normalisation with Saudi Arabia. The Palestinian question, if it featured in these analyses at all, was regarded as a footnote and or an irritant. On Saturday morning, the Palestinian militant group Hamas launched an attack from Gaza of unprecedented scale and even by Hamas's wretched standards of incomprehensible brutality. At least 1,300 Israelis were killed, the worst day in Israel's history. And several of the days since can be reckoned among the worst in Gaza's. Local authorities now say at least 1,500 Palestinians have been killed. Um, Yossi, See, it, it, it's been a, a horrific week, uh, and the coming days and weeks are unlikely to be an improvement. But if we go back to the events of Saturday, first of all, is it yet clear how this clearly large-scale, long-planned, carefully rehearsed attack could possibly have happened? Yeah, and we said here exactly a week ago, so this is impossible. There is no way that Hamas is a capable of coordinating such such an operation, air, sea, land. And it's incomprehensible that the Israeli intelligence will detect at any stage, whether it's the training of that, preparing for that, and, and definitely conducting it. And we are sitting there, and it's, I think it's, it's a combination of in intelligence is not only whether you have the information, whether where you look for information, how you analyze information. And if you're working assumption, is that Hamas is not interested anymore in, in, in a military struggle, is not a confrontation. Because, you know, the, the generation that were more militant are now in power, and as a result, if they get the money, they are, they are happy. In many ways, they start in Israel thinking about them like as the old PLO, what the PLO is doing in, in, in the West Bank, and more interested in their vested interests. Hamas is a kind of PLO 2.0. Mm. And they got it very wrong, and it's... And when intelligence community are locked in a perception, then they also look at the f- at, at at information that reinforces what they already think. 
I mean, Lena, if we look at the organisation that carried this attack out on Saturday, is it clear what, if any, uh, strategic purpose there was to this from Hamas's point of view? I mean, given Hamas's records over the record rather over the years of their existence, uh, large-scale mayhem killing lots of Jewish people is usually sufficient motivation for them. But beyond that, is it clear that they thought this would further their cause somehow? Well, obviously, because otherwise they wouldn't have done it in this way. Um, Of course, they wanted to further their cause, and their cause is a political cause. Um, Now, we have to think of the circumstances around the timing. Uh, One is perhaps they were looking closely at what Yossi uh, has been describing, which is uh, arrogance, perhaps, within the Israeli establishment about capabilities uh, for for Israel. Uh, Perhaps they felt that Israel was too distracted with internal divisions and this was a good moment to attack. Uh, There's also the wider geopolitical context of the talks between Saudi Arabia and Israel and the United States, which, of course, did not start just a few weeks ago. I mean, People are talking about this operation having been uh, planned uh, a while back, maybe a year or so uh, before, but so were these talks. And so Hamas would have been looking at Uh, the changes in the geopolitical uh, situation. And also we have to remember that these talks were involving the Palestinian Authority, uh, not Hamas. Um, And finally, divisions within the Palestinian Authority with Mahmoud Abbas's health uh, being quite poor, him being elderly, with no succession plan uh, in place uh, for who would lead uh, the Palestinian Authority after uh, Abbas. So there are a number of uh, direct uh, driving factors But of course, you also have the behavior of the Netanyahu government uh, with the right wing elements in that government that have been responsible for escalated attacks on uh, Palestinians and and Palestinian Israelis. And Hamas feels that this is a moment for it to assert itself uh, through military means as a political actor as the representative of legitimate uh, Palestinian voices and as the entity that's going to address their grievances. So I think these are the motivations and this is the context. But just to follow that up, what, well, among the things that baffles me uh, about this attack that Hamas launched on Saturday was they appear to have done it completely heedless of the consequences. And whether or not they set out with the intention of murdering hundreds and hundreds of civilians, which is what they ended up doing, they would have understood that the Israeli retaliation to an attack like that would be, as it doubtless will be, absolutely monumental. Was there an element of Hamas embarking on some sort of blaze of glory strategy here? I mean, definitely they want to be seen as heroic. Uh, Again, the timing is not accidental, coinciding with almost 50 years since the 1973 uh, Yom Kippur War. So definitely they're seeking heroism. They're seeking to say, we have done the unthinkable. And uh, they... But but even even at the cost of it being potentially the end of their organisation? I don't think they see it as the end. Even if they're militarily defeated, I don't think they see it as uh, the end. I think they think that the uh, cost is uh, justifiable. 
Uh, they think people are so desperate that they would get behind Hamas, no matter the scale of violence that is that is used. Um, and people are indeed desperate, sadly, in Gaza. And, and you know, when you talk about a very uh, limited uh, uh, geographical area with uh, a densely populated, uh, you know, landscape with, with people, you know, uh, really suffering... Um, Hamas wants to kind of show them that, you know what, uh, a sacrifice is worth it. So I, I personally find it difficult to believe that Hamas did not think of the consequences. Well, Yossi, well, let's then think about those consequences, because Israel since Saturday has said, and entirely understandably, that the end of Hamas is uh, now very much a war aim. Um, is it clear to you yet, though, how they plan to go about that? Does Israel have an end point in mind beyond uh, vengeance? I think there is strong element of vengeance, no doubt, because you hear the language, which is mm. about, about, about avenging and, and revenging. But having said that, since they caught by surprise, they didn't have any plan what you're going to do, because for many, many years, when you have someone like Avigdor Lieberman said, no, we need to get into Gaza, we need to eliminate Hamas, because there is no way to, to coexist. Even an easy coexistence, but you can't have it with Hamas. You have people now said, yes, we are capable to do that. Because it's a, it's, it's a complete flip of change of mind. Because, again, in the Israeli mind, we allowed economic situation to improve there. Now, that is far from being enough in any shape or form. We allowed a bit more workers to work in Israel. And it's, again, the same there. We, we improve situation and we get in return violence. It's kind of when Israel withdrew from Lebanon. You see, we withdrew from Lebanon, and then we get rockets. We withdrew from Gaza, we got Hamas. So right now, there is no much subtlety, there is no much nuance in these policies. Mm. So the idea, if that's what we got for that, let's go in full force. But I must say, Lena, I, I agree with what you say, but at the same time, something in me suspect that actually Hamas was surprised by the unbearable easiness in entering into Israel. And when they were there... so. Obviously, they want to be heroic, but I think for them probably killing 20 soldiers and, and kidnapping five will be heroic enough. When they didn't face any, any resistance there, then I don't know if lost discipline or this is part of uh, definitely one of their ideology, but it went well beyond, I think, what they thought they would achieve. But maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> um, Lena, what have you made so far of the response from other Arab capitals. We did see the Arab League's foreign ministers convening in great haste in Cairo earlier in the week, and they have issued the pro forma condemnations of Israel and support for the people of Gaza that you might expect. But what we have not seen uh, is any really dramatic diplomatic gestures like, for example, those countries which recently normalised relations with Israel, even threatening to withdraw from the Abraham Accords. I mean, the Abraham Accords have never been about solving the Palestine-Israel conflict. Mm. And so I, I don't think withdrawing from the Abraham Accords would even achieve that symbolic but, but even uh, message. But even as a gesture? No, it, 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 it would not. I think we need to really look for the countries that have been involved in mediation and that have a bigger stake in solving the conflict itself. Uh, because 
the way uh, the Abraham Accords are kind of designed, they, they can coexist, unfortunately, with, with this conflict continuing. So that's kind of a separate issue. And we shouldn't actually conflate the Abraham Accords with the Arab Peace Initiative, which is what Saudi Arabia had put on the table a while back under the umbrella of the Arab League. Now, the Arab League, of course, is not really very effective. It has never been. But Saudi Arabia is a crucial player here, as is Egypt to a degree. Now, Egypt had been trying for years to, in a way, resurrect its role as mediator and failed, which means that in a more complicated landscape like today, Egypt is going to be even less effective. Uh, So we can rule that out. Uh, Plus, Egypt has an election looming for President Sisi. Uh, uh, This is a big challenge. The last thing Sisi needs is yet another complication uh, uh, on his hands. Uh, So in a way, Egypt will just, uh, you know, uh, try to uh, play a limited role, I would say, rather than, you know, going out of its way uh, uh, to kind of engage in diplomacy. So that leaves Saudi Arabia. It's actually very interesting that the Saudi Ministry of Foreign Affairs issued a statement that began was saying we are closely following uh, what is happening. That was like the first statement Mm. released. Towards the end of the statement, in the last paragraph, they did mention uh, the occupation uh, and that there needs to be uh, a two-state solution implemented. And here they they, they were referencing their own Arab peace initiative. But I think because this uh, attack on Saturday took everyone by surprise, uh, Saudi Arabia will now be really thinking what next steps it can do and, and and you know most likely talking to the United States about okay what do we do about this this deal we were gonna you know just d- discuss and, and 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 so I think you know rushing to condemnation uh, is also very difficult for them because of you know this this diplomatic track that they will not want to abandon so they need to calibrate their next move uh, don't you think also there is an element here? A lot of these governments or regimes are afraid of Islamic uh, fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. And, and the Hamas is an offshoot of the, the, the Ikhwans, of, of the Muslim Brotherhood. So in many ways, they won't really be too uh, sad to see Hamas being hit and hit hardly as sending a message to other uh, Islamist uh, organizations. It can be done. Uh, I think is a very cogent point, and it is, of course, noticeable that Egypt has been notably unenthused about the prospect of opening any humanitarian corridor out of Gaza. Uh, People often forget that it is not merely Israel that has been blockading Gaza for many years. Yossi, the United States has, of course, descended on this with great alacrity. Uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has been in Israel, is today in Qatar. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin um, is in Israel. They are obviously concerned about this spreading any further than it really needs to. But it, it already has a bit. We've seen airstrikes this week as well by Israel upon the airports in, Dam- in Damascus and Aleppo in Syria. Um, as far as it's possible to tell, what was that about? Were they hitting anything in particular or was that a message being sent to Iran? Well, this is actually an ongoing thing, that mm. uh, b- bombing in, 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 in Syria. Indeed, so but, th- but, stop- this, but this week in particular... It- it has think, an added significance? I, I don't think it, it's, it's, it's different from one. When the Israelis intelligence of the transfer of weapons, ammunition from Iran towards Lebanon, Syria, Lebanon, then they will, they, 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 the airplanes are in the air and, and, and bombing. I think what is, was interesting, it's, there were some reports about an Iranian airplane that just 
mid air decided to go back to Tehran or somewhere in Iran. Like, why, wise decision if true. Yeah, because the, yeah, they know that kind of probably Israeli patience at this moment is, is very thin on the ground. And also the fear also if it expands to, to, to Lebanon and Hezbollah. So we see some skirmishes. But whether Hezbollah, especially, I think the first few hours there was a real danger that Hezbollah will be tempted to say Israel is in its weakest point. Maybe we'll embark on something bigger and smaller, but the, 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 the message from the United States that now treats Israel as if it's a member of NATO. Mm. And Article 5 is, is, is a vote. I think this, the, the, it signaled very clearly. But I think also with the United States, and as, as friendly as Biden's speech was, I think it's important to look also at two caveats there. One, we are friends as long as we are democracies. The alliance is based on us staying mm. democracies. In other words, Netanyahu just just discard with all the, the, the so-called reforms. And the other thing, democracies should fight differently. There are laws of war. There is a law of war. And you can't behave in a way that will actually... The Hamas basically is behaving. They are terrorist group, and they put them now together with ISIS mm. and, and Al-Qaeda, but the state should behave differently. So there were two caveats there. I think Israel better listened Uh, Lena, we did talk earlier this week about uh, Hezbollah's potential involvement in this. And as Yossi has pointed out, there has been some exchanges of fire between Hezbollah and IDF positions in the north of Israel. We have, of course, seen that piece of uh, maritime theatre of the USS Gerald R. Ford uh, aircraft carrier strike group being dispatched to the eastern Mediterranean with great haste. And I think we were talking earlier this week about how Hezbollah was the obvious audience for that manoeuvre. But does Hezbollah really want anything to do with this? Is there anything in it for them? What's in it for them is to save face for themselves. And that's why they've launched these limited attacks on uh, northern Israel. They can't be seen to just be standing there doing nothing when uh, Hamas is involved in a, in a battle of this scale. But at the same time, it is not in their interest for the conflict to become a regional one involving Lebanon because they don't have the local support in Lebanon. Uh, they uh, do not have uh, the same political pressure that might push them to want to uh, engage in that move like what happened in 2006 when Hezbollah actually sparked uh, a war with uh, Israel. Mm. Uh, and at that time, it was quite politically squeezed in Lebanon uh, in the aftermath of the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri, because many were pointing the finger at, at Hezbollah for that assassination. Um, today, Hezbollah is the most powerful political actor in Lebanon, so it doesn't need to assert itself. It's already assertive. And so the cost is much higher uh, than the benefit. Well, just finally, um, I, I'm always a bit uh, self-conscious about asking guests to tell me what's going to happen rather than analysing what has happened. And you, you've both done a splendid job of that. But I want to ask you each in turn, and you won't be held to any predictions you may make. Yossi, how do you see this panning out from where we are now? Say a, a month from now, what do you think this looks like? I was afraid of this question. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think... It will get worse way before it will get better. And we need to brace ourselves. I'm dreading the next few days and week because we know exactly what happened in Gaza. And at a certain point, the international community will have to intervene. And depends how Israel managed to achieve its objective in, in, the, next day or in the next days. 
but at the same time to send a message that it can be an express of, of two million people and, and and this is one of the possibilities what I would I, probably I'll say more what I would like to see because I'm not so sure it's it's can mm-hmm. I think already the sides need to start talking seriously and about the day after the war because this can't and shouldn't continue like this how you end the blockade on Gaza how you are you restart some talks it doesn't have to be in public it can be behind behind closed doors improving the the, the situation in the West Bank how you reduce a, a settler violence what do you do in places like Jenin and Ablos all of these flashpoints because the one thing I think everyone understand if we're not going back to the root causes of the conflict at one point or another we are in this situation and the international community definitely Israel the Palestinian the neglected all of this the Israel probably will have a different leadership by the end of all of it eventually even the Palestinians will have a different uh, leadership and then they will have to look also in a different way so I think this is we start need to build an alternative to look into new ideas people use the kind of the mantra two-state solution but we know that the two-state solution that the way it was envisaged uh, 30 years ago doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. so we need to look there for instance can a confederation between Israel and Palestine and Every thought in your know, two states in one state reality, a lot of these kind of ideas, instead of talking about borders and the, the, and, and the more tangible thing that talk about values, for instance, how we ensure where everyone is can live in dignity and freedom and, and, and human rights and political rights. So we need to change this kind of con. And in a sad way, and we learn it from history, it's actually when there is a major disaster, there is also a major opportunity. And Lena, how do you see things tracking from here? Um, I mean, I agree with Yossi. Um, sadly, I think even if the U.S. has uh, indicated that uh, rules of engagement need to abide by international law, this will not necessarily deter Israel from going all out with the ground uh, operation that's anticipated in Gaza. And that means a humanitarian uh, disaster of epic uh, proportions. And this will only make grievances worse and grudges deeper and make it very difficult to have, you know, a solution. Um, However, uh, once the dust settles, because eventually it will, I think it's important for everyone involved in any form of war crimes or, or kind of behavior that is against international law to be held accountable. And I am um, also interested to see what will happen inside Israel politically with the position of Netanyahu, because right now this uh, escalation in retaliation by Israel serves his political agenda because it offers him protection. But he is already facing uh, lots of criticism in Israel and maybe now is not the time you know for 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 holding him accountable because there's this national emergency going on but eventually I I expect Israeli voices will want to do that and that could be also a turning point uh, in the landscape of the conflict Lena Katib and Yossi Merkelberg thank you both for joining us you're listening to the daily on monocle radio and Australians will vote tomorrow in the country's first referendum this century on tweaking the Constitution. And as outlined in this week's Foreign Desk Explainer, Australians have said no to such questions so many times that they're not asked all that often. This referendum will ask whether Australians wish to enshrine in the Constitution an Indigenous voice to Australia's Parliament to make representations on behalf of 
Australia's Indigenous peoples. The idea seemed very popular when floated. Recent polling suggests it has become much less so. Well, earlier I spoke to Thomas Mayo, who has long been one of the most prominent advocates for The Voice. I began by asking how optimistic he still was. I'm optimistic. We're down in the polls here, but we see a much different response from people on the streets, you know, in in the train stations when we're leafleting, uh, the door knocking. We're seeing a a much more positive response than the the polls are reflecting. And we also understand that a lot of Australians are undecided and we feel the tide has really started to shift and we're on the rise, we believe. So we're going to fight all the way till the very last ballot is, is cast to try and win this. When you talk to those Australians who are undecided, what are you hearing from them? Why are they hesitant? Well, for a lot of people, they don't understand the plight of Indigenous people. It's uh, quite shocking to to find out that people are unaware of the entrenched disadvantage that Indigenous people face in this country. For example, our life expectancy is less than other Australians by about 10 to 20 years, depending on, you know, if you're in an urban place or a remote community. But uh, even 10 years is, is quite a, a gap. Our suicide rates are twice as high as non-Indigenous Australians. Our incarceration rates are proportionately the worst in the world. Our youth are more likely to go to prison than they are to go to university. These are real problems that um, has surprisingly been something that has been not well known enough to motivate people to support change. The other thing is we've seen a very Trump-like disinformation and fear campaign, and that has come from you know a, a two-party political system. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has taken a position to oppose a successful referendum. And he's used such rhetoric as saying on the day that he announced their official opposition and in Parliament, he said that it would re-racialise Australia if this was to succeed, when we're not talking about race at all, we're talking about Indigenous peoples. And that has really turned the toxicity up to 10. You know, it's just really awful on social media. Anyone, especially someone that is a prominent person in Australia that posts in support of it on social media just gets a pile on from trolls and just some really awful behaviour. And it's straight out of the Trump playbook, you know, the the mistruths. And unfortunately, the media here, you know, hasn't done a, a good enough job of providing that balance to cut through the noise that is being purposely created by the, the No campaign. You know, a lot of Australians are confused They believe that they're going to lose something if we vote yes. You know, there's a part of the fear campaign is saying that people will lose their backyard, that Indigenous people will charge them extra rents if we get this voice. You know, all all of this that we've actually heard before in Australia. Indigenous peoples were only paid in rations. You know, they said that businesses would shut down if we got equal pay. When we did get land rights, as we have. In this country, uh, in the 70s and the 90s, there was a native title, a high court case that recognised Indigenous coexistence laws about property. They said that people lose their backyards then. None of these things came to pass when we succeeded, but here we are again. But in the age of social media, that sort of fear-mongering can be uh, quite loud and effective. But do you think some of that could have been avoided, not just the uncertainty and the fear-mongering, but 
the fact of Australia's Indigenous people being stuck out in the crossfire of a culture war, which must be unimaginably hideous. If the government, rather than pushing for a referendum to enshrine this in the Constitution, had merely said, if we get elected, we're going to just do this and legislated for it instead of wanting a constitutional amendment. No, that's, that's not what Indigenous people wanted. This country has had a long discourse about constitutional recognition. Mm. Um, it's had bipartisanship for more than 10 years, the idea that we should recognise Indigenous people in our constitution. That bipartisanship only disappeared when you know there was a change of government and, and the new government committed to it. And as I said, the opposition leader has decided to make it a, a political for political gain to oppose it rather than looking at how this is in the national interest. Now, the form of constitutional recognition that Indigenous people have called for through a document called the Uluru Statement from the Heart back in 2017 is the form that is a guaranteed voice or representative body. Mm. And the reason for this is that every we have had representative bodies, Indigenous peoples in this country, which is consistent with our commitment to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. But every time we have established one just merely in legislation, so the parliament just doing it, as you mm. suggested, the next government has that has come along has taken it away. So Indigenous people couldn't ignore that pattern. We know that we need a voice to make progress. We know that we had a commitment to constitutional recognition. So we've said, enshrined it in the constitution so that we're guaranteed a say about the decisions that are made about us. And the recognition is the constitutional change is that it's an advisory committee, so it can only give decide what advice it gives to the parliament. And we know that that is a very modest proposal, mm. recognition and being listened to, you know, in line with the how we believe that we are a nation of a fair go. And I think if it didn't lose bipartisanship, if the opposition leader didn't decide to make a political game out of it, then it would be certain to succeed. I think the Australian people would have voted yes and uh, would be confident, more confident they will. It's not over yet. We're still optimistic, but it's, it's that much harder because of that position that they've taken. That was Thomas Mayo speaking to me ahead of tomorrow's referendum in Australia, and we will, of course, be following up the result on our shows on Monday. This week saw the inauguration of a symposium which hopes to prompt new thinking about how we govern ourselves. The Technologies for Governments Lab is a collaboration between the Government for Tomorrow Forum and the Finnish city of Tampere. Earlier, I spoke to Carsten Klaus, a strategy advisor for culture and company building, futures anthropologist and foresight advisor to the EU Commission. I began by asking Carsten whether lessons on company culture strategy can be applied to the public sector as well as the private yes especially when it comes to rushing things that really pay off let's say that way my work i have a background in anthropology so there's four steps i look at things that is observing things making sense of things and once i understood these is shaping options and when i have options i can make decisions very often i see it in business that things are observed and then they jump to conclusions and make decisions, sometimes without thinking them through. 
it seems to me in politics maybe similarities. It's definitely not unheard of in politics in that respect, certainly. Is this the kind of, uh, I guess, faulty thinking that the Government Tomorrow Forum hopes to address? This is definitely one of the things. So what the Government Tomorrow Forum wants to readdress is how governments, uh, regional, national, municipalities, go about involving not always the same experts, but people from different backgrounds and cultures to get together a diverse set of thinking and thinking things through. And also not to be just another conference that is maybe held once a year. And after that, some narratives or ideas are sitting idle, but we want to help getting things into action. So the Government Tomorrow Forum is going uh, to launch labs that work all year long to co-create approaches to problems and tools that serve citizens. You mentioned earlier the, the difficulties caused by governments perennially turning to the same experts or the same kind of experts. If we can infer from that that the Government Tomorrow Forum will have different experts, who are you prevailing upon to participate uh, in this? Who will the Government Tomorrow Forum actually be? So the group will consist of international experts like former heads of government, ministers and tech entrepreneurs, as well as thinkers and researchers. And um, we will also set up the first lab um, together with the city of Tampere in Finland and the University of Tampere, where also students will be involved. You mentioned there the location. I was wondering how significant that was, because Scandinavian countries do, of course, have a reputation for being ahead of the curve in thinking about governance. Uh, Finland keeps being called the happiest nation on earth, and Tampere is, at least, uh, according to some estimations, the happiest city in the happiest nation on earth. Are, are you kind of hoping that the, the setting of the Government Tomorrow Forum will itself serve as an example? Yeah, I mean, Tumper, I think, repeatedly have been the happiest people, I don't know, only in Finland or... And technology, yeah, in the Nordics, like, how to say it? I'm from Germany, and when I want to look two years or more into the future, it just takes two hours by flying up there. So be Tallinn or, or Helsinki or Tumper, and Tumper is at the forefront of technology. But it's not only technology. So this is what intrigues me, also being an anthropologist by background. I always look at what people do and uh, like how they interact with technology and how is technology used, like with what intention and what agenda. And I think a city like Tampere is really well set up in order to have a reflected application and, and bringing in the university, not only the city, but also the University of Tampere. On that subject, I know that one of the first things or one of the first sessions uh, of the Government Tomorrow Forum will be dedicated to AI. How optimistic are you about what it could end up doing for governance? Well, AI, first of all, will be the broader theme so we will look into into sub themes that are related to it like um, augmented reality um, and so on and um, so we will specify themes and practical areas of application of the technologies but when it comes to technology it always boils down to how it is applied 
I think I don't know where I read it, but it was like I like the quote: "Technology tells you what is possible, and society kind of tells you what is feasible with that." And uh, different societies use different technologies in different ways, and we want to work with governments in a way that technologies are really used in favor of citizens and public services. And we look at the possibilities and dangers and then see how this can lead to according recommendations and actionable tools and solutions. That was Carsten Klaus speaking to me earlier about the Technologies for Governments Lab. And finally, on today's show, the annual Freeze Art Fair is underway in Regent's Park here in London. And joining me now in the studio with a selection of his purchases is Monocle's <laughs> head of radio, Tom Edwards. Uh, Tom, what, what have you come back from Freeze with? Andrew, I've neither purchased nor pilfered anything, I can assure <laughs> you. But I thought, what better way to mark this fleeting appearance on the daily uh, talk about visual art than by bringing you some visual Eight, surely the, I mean, the in, perfect resource for what is essentially an audio medium. In, incredibly helpful on radio. Um, I should stress to the listeners that Tom has actually gone to the trouble here. He has printed things out. What you can hear in the background is not just him waving around blank pieces of paper really in, order, in order to create the image that he's made any effort at all. He actually has. Um, what, what, what do we have here, Tom? So I've got six works. Okay. We'll see how many we get through in the time available. I want an... An immediate this is, this is great. This is like the global countdown without the awful music. Yeah, I mean, hey, wait till you see the one tomorrow. <laughs> immediate reaction, and okay. then I'll tell you a little bit more okay. about each, starting with number one. I, I, I don't mind that. It's busy and colourful. Is it? Is it by a French person who painted this in between uh, squeezing his tiny accordion? Ballpark. <laughs> I actually thought that this is by uh, the late, great Paul Arago. It was on display at Victoria Miro, who won my sort of nominal best stand just because okay. just because the mix that was on display big fan of obviously paul rego this is a big it's, i mean it's got a frog in it colorful <laughs> painting careful andrew i actually was struck there's a couple of i don't know if it's a tortoise or a turtle in there the one in the top left corner andrew reminded me of you a little bit really in, 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 well, in, just sticking in, its head out of the shell nah, looks a bit yeah. kind of confused yeah no? I, can, I, I, I get that a lot it's not I wearing a paisley that. shirt to be fair yeah, it is not I don't, I don't actually mind you that. don't okay I don't mind that at all uh, let's shall, shall i go to number two let's go to number two Describe this using your words, Andrew. Whoa, um, this would be sort of abstracty cubist <laughs> sort of thing. It's a bit like staring down a kaleidoscope with a headache. Do you know what? That's not bad. This is Sarah Morris, one of the big uh, I don't mind this either, spiderweb uh, paintings that she painted during lockdown on display at White Cube. Which I lockdown, really lockdown did funny things to people. It did. Well, you can see the web. Maybe there's yeah, something to be said mm, about feeling digitalization, the traps, yeah, okay, um, yep, predatory yep. forces at play. I sense you need something slightly more sober, Andrew. Okay. Roll on to page three. What do you make of this, this one? This is more sober. This is this is a cushion cover. Show me this one because I've forgotten what it is. <laughs> oh, what do you think that's made of? Uh, whatever people make cushion covers of wool. I don't know. I've never made a cushion cover. It's a whole, I do own several. It's an abstract piece made out of dice or dye. So it is. Do you see that? Look oh, in a little closer. Okay, that is... Is that pleasing to the eye? Well, this is by Troika, um, and it was on uh, display at the stand from OMR, from Mexico City. Uh, that That is all at once really bloody clever, and so far as I can tell, just completely pointless. I mean, um, you've, uh, I you've mean, basically described contemporary art <laughs> very elegantly. Uh, I, actually, I... I so this is when you go and see it. This is literally the physical three D thing with dice. It's, yeah. This is not a. Digitized, I didn't count. I didn't count them all. But it's not a digitized representation no, no. of what it would look like if you made a picture out of dice. That's what this is. It's real dice, Andrew. 
Okay, so that's... you could, you could uh, shoot some craps while you were there. Yeah, I, I, okay, I'm, I, I will confess to being grudgingly impressed, though it does look like a cushion. I mean, a nice cushion cover, but anyway, uh... you must have some big cushions in your house. That's, <laughs> it's, about eight, it's about eight by five, though, Andrew. <laughs> Moving I, along, let's move on. Let, let, let's skip the next one and jump to number five. Why are we skipping number four? Is it? Uh, well, we're short of time. Okay. What have you got, number five? So this. Wow. I like Andrew. One of my favourite things is art about art. Artists. Uh, riffing on other artists. And what I like about this one, it's Michael Landy, mm-hmm. who you may remember... Well, in fact, you probably remember from over 20 years ago when he did Breakdown. Do you remember this piece down in Oxford Street near here? I do. He destroyed all his personal yes, effects. I remember that. And this is uh, an homage uh, to Jean Tingley, who did a famous sculptural performance in New York where the sculptural piece that he created destroyed itself. So you can see why that's interesting to someone like Landy okay. with his proclivities. And the reason I thought I'd include this, A, I loved it. B, I managed to overhear the price tag. So let's play that game, Andrew. What's it worth? And I've got to tell you, it's, it's maybe, it's kind of a eight foot by five foot. It's quite a large work. Uh, I wouldn't know where to start guessing. I mean, I, just for the record, I quite like this as well. It's 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 busy and vibrant and there's lots of stuff going on and it's got the weird Heath Robinson contraption. Uh, <laughs> it's in, like the Monocle Daily. Yeah, in, in the middle of it. What would it cost? I'm guessing more than five pounds. You are correct, Andrew. <laughs> I know that's... Go. Look at, uh, 45,000 45, of your English pounds. 45,000 quid. I'm going to say uh, cheap at the price. Shall I wrap things up with something like even a sober finish? Please do. This is number you, six. Number six. Look at this. What do you make of this one? Describe this for us. Uh, it's it's, re- this is really big. It's probably 10, 10 by six, I'd it say. It looks like part of a boot print, but I'm guessing it's, it's not. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's a work on paper. Uh, this is by Kwon Young-woo. Okay. I know, Andrew, you were about to say... Not the late pioneer of the modern monochrome mo- movement. Words out of my mouth, Tom. Uh, for it is he. Uh, t- the t- From the Tina Kim uh, gallery. But what I like about this, you don't normally see really epic works on paper because mm-hmm. generally well, people <laughs> work on a canvas. Um, but it's very... Pa- it's, it's paper being of abstraction. Paper, paper being brittle. Well, there you go. Yeah. But it's gentle colour. It is monochrome, obviously. I, I was quite captivated by this, Andrew, and I stood there for... Some time, uh, not just because I was tired, and became and became lost. <laughs> Trying to avoid going back to the office, <laughs> I became lost, uh, lost in the in the beauty of the image. So there, those are a few of the the things that struck me. If one had to adorn the walls, Casa yeah. Muller, not too far from me, up in northeast London. What would you go for? Uh, I do quite like number one, the the busy one of the turtles and the frogs and the chap here with the cat and the turban and whatever the hell else is going on here. I, I, there's, a, there's also a snail in it, uh, I could just point out. Um, I, yeah, I, I didn't mind that one at all. It's lo- it, it's, it's, uh, there's a duck, and who doesn't like a duck? I couldn't have put it better myself, Andrew. See, you can tell why I'm not an art critic. Tom Edwards, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, just how much longer is Freeze on? Uh, all through the weekend, and don't forget, I there's also uh, Freeze Masters, uh, just mm-hmm. across on the other side of Regent's Park and the sculptural uh, installations, which are there for even longer. So if you're just walking by, you don't even need to bother with a ticket and all that flim-flam. <laughs> just wander in and have a browse. Do exactly that. 
That was Tom Edwards, our head of radio, speaking to me earlier. Uh, that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to our panellists today, Lena Khatib and Yossi Meckelberg. And you can hear more from Yossi on a special live edition of The Foreign Desk on Saturday midday UK time. Today's show was produced by Paige Reynolds and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Thank you.